Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now, you're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The, the, the problem with the pre-draft folderol, F-O-L-D-E-R-O-L, noun, Trivial or nonsensical fuss via Google. Folderol. And I'll tell you something, Peter. Right after you said folderol, I, first of all, I didn't know how to spell it. I figured it out. I Googled it. And Pete Demolitis, who even when he's not producing, is watching the show and contributing, he sent me a screenshot of the exact thing that I Googled. We both needed to know what folderol is. So we ultimately made a gigantic folderol out of the fact that you used the word folderol. Did I use it correctly? I love that. In a two-hour show, there's plenty of time for fall (laughs) drill. That was just a week ago. Lots of fall drill last Friday. Plenty more fall drill today as we stand six days away from the 2021 draft. He's Peter King. I'm Mike Florio. Two hours to fill. It's fall drill time, Peter. (laughs) Hi, Mike. Hi, Peter. And, Let's have some you know, folder roll. I, I hate to say this. Now, a week from today, it won't be folder roll. We'll have a full first oh. round of the draft that we can react to, dissect. There will be surprises, we hope. We have a draft coming up later about the biggest holy crap moments in the draft from past years. <clears throat> but for today, it's definitely folder roll, and it begins with something that Tom Brady believes is, yes, Falderall, or another word that would begin with F. Tom Brady (laughs) is not happy. And Tom Brady is not a guy to complain. He is not a guy to say, get off my lawn, although maybe he's becoming one. He doesn't like the rule change, Peter, the one that you predicted correctly would pass easily. And I didn't see a whole lot of pushback to the expanded jersey numbers from a strategic standpoint until after the rule was passed. Here's Tom Brady, social media. It's dumb. It's going to make for a lot of bad football. 
I guess it confuses quarterbacks when they see a guy in the 20s. Is he a defensive back? Is he a linebacker? Who's blitzing? Who's the mic? Seven is the mic. That's going to be weird when they're yelling it out at the line of scrimmage. Peter, I can't imagine when you consider how much film you study in advance of the game, Tom Brady's ever going to be confused about who it is on the other side of the line of scrimmage, whatever jersey number they're wearing. You know, before this happened, uh, I had one guy who, who works for a team, shall we say, say to me that this is going to be a debacle. I said, why? And he said, this is going to be a debacle because everyone in the NFL is used to studying certain plays or certain players at certain positions. And now what's going to happen is you're going to see all these numbers and you're going to see, let's say, you know, a linebacker who's, you know, number seven, let's say, or, or whatever it is. And I think what you're going to do is you're going to assume that that guy, or let's say a linebacker who's number 22, you're going to assume, oh yeah, strong safety. And he's just playing down in the box. And and I think that is why a lot of traditional, you know, players and, uh, you know, scouts, coaches and everything don't like this rule. But Mike, there's a very simple reason why this rule happened. And there's a simpler reason why no one in management or ownership or, or really, you know, had any complaints about it whatsoever. Last year, the Kansas City Chiefs had three players on their team who wore the number 30. And two of them were on the team at the same time. One of them got injured in training camp and was out for the year. But then during the season, two guys were wearing the number 30 and they would get to Sunday and they would have to decide, you know, one of them was a running back and one of them was a defensive back. And at that time, Brett Veach just said internally, he said, We've got to do something about this. We just don't have enough numbers, you know, and so we need to spread out who can have these numbers. And Mike, the biggest culprit is the fact that practice squads are going to be somewhere between 14 and 16 this year after being 16 last year. That is why, you know, that combined with the fact that some teams have 11 or 12 retired numbers that's really the reason why this had to happen. And the fact that Brett Veach and other administrative types saw that problem, and for example, in Kansas City, Andy Reid, the head coach of the Chiefs, didn't grab Brett Veach by the collar and say, well, listen, you know, he starts every answer. Well, listen, listen, Veach, this is going to screw things up for us. That's not a very good Andy Reid impersonation, but there you get with the point. But the but the point, the point is this, <laughs> where were the head coaches, right? When there's a rule change that is rocketing through and guys like Peter King are reporting in Football Morning in America, it's going to pass easily. They're on notice. Where were they before Wednesday shouting from the rooftops? This is going to be a debacle. Unless it's Andy Reid, John Harbaugh, Bill Belichick, Bruce Arians, any of the big name coaches in the NFL saying... Whoa, whoa, you guys want some bad football, you go ahead and pass that rule. Those voices were silent before the rule was voted on and passed easily. And the fact that Brady didn't say a word about it until after it passed Peter, look, I understand he's probably above the falterall of NFL news and information, but if it's going to affect you, I'd like to think 
Greatest player in league history is paying some attention. Why didn't he say something before Wednesday, Peter? Well, that's a good question. Maybe he doesn't read football in America as quite as attentively as he should. Mike. But hey, look, I don't think you ask why did Andy Reid not make a big deal of this? I'm just telling you this right now, Mike. Brett Veach might be upset about something, and and maybe a few other people, the equipment manager of the Chiefs might be upset about something. But I can just tell you this. If Andy Reid didn't like this rule, the Kansas City Chiefs would not have proposed it. So I can tell you that Andy Reid is not upset about this rule. He just is going to shrug his shoulders. And look, Mike, you know, I think sometimes there is a little issue of the day, let's say, which this one is going to be. Some quarterbacks clearly are not going to like it because it's going to make film study a little bit harder. But I also think that if you really ask yourself this question, and again, I'm not in the film room, so I'm not with those guys as they say, oh, this is a terrible, this is going to be make this harder, that harder. You know, I, I guess that I am like what one of the club executives told me over the weekend when we talked about it you know basically his whole attitude was hey listen we got to loosen up a little bit you know it's just not that big a deal and i kind of agree with him i hey mike you know what is really going to be fun though here's what i hear robert woods and jalen ramsey of the rams each want to wear number two now ramsey you know in in college was number eight at florida state Woods, though, was number two in college. And so I think he's going to call dibs on number two because he's, uh, he's, got more, he's more of a veteran player and he's also got seniority on the Rams. So unless Jalen Ramsey parts with some of his, uh, some of his uh, contractual gains, I think you'll probably see Woods with number two and who knows what you'll see uh, Jalen Ramsey with. We had Robert Woods live last Thursday on the program. We talked about that very issue, this land rush that will ensue in locker rooms throughout the NFL for not just the single digits, but the other numbers that have been expanded for use by linebackers. Linebackers can go in the teens and the 20s and the 30s now. You can have running backs in the 80s. Ty Montgomery had been in the 80s because he started as a receiver. There's a lot more flexibility than just expanded single digits. So you're going to have some jostling like that. Let me tell you this, Peter. Here's where players need to be aware. And there was a report last night from the St. Paul Pioneer Press that Dalvin Cook thinking about moving from 33 to 4. But he's looking into how much it will cost him by virtue of all of the unsold Dalvin Cook jerseys. Now, I've been working on this, and I actually do some work for a change. Every once in a while, I try to do some original reporting. It's not very often. It gives me a headache, so I don't try to do it very much. But I'm aware of a player who has expressed an interest in changing his number to a single digit, and he's been informed by his team that to do so will cost him $170,000 because he has to buy the Fanatics inventory, Peter, not at cost. He's got to buy it at retail. Can you believe that? I mean, there's something inherently unfair about it, but that's the kind of fight that we're going to see. And you're going to have some guys and the more popular players who are more likely to have a stockpile of jerseys with their numbers already on them, 
those are the guys who are going to be at a more difficult spot when they're trying to trying to squat on a single-digit number or some other number because the price for them is more likely going to be higher than it would be for somebody that that nobody buys their jersey as it is, so there's no inventory that's out there that would have to be purchased. you got to figure, I was just going to say that, you know, let's say you're Dalvin Cook and you want to make that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, vanity, preference, what, whatever the reason would be. And let's just say that you're a fairly popular player. Like I would assume that Dalvin Cook's jersey in Minneapolis is going to be one of the most popular jerseys of any athlete in the Twin Cities. And so you gotta, you've got to factor that in, Mike. And the one other thing that I believe you're going to see happen is you are going to see a lot of the lesser lights who are not going to have a bigger cost. You're going to see them be more anxious to change jersey numbers because if they don't have much to buy back, what's the big deal? They'll just change jersey numbers. Who knows? Maybe it won't. Some players, it probably won't cost them anything. And Peter, the conversation that came up in the context of the J.J. Watt signing with Arizona and the unretirement of 99, that's going to be an issue potentially, eventually. And I've still got on my list of things to write about all the single-digit numbers that are retired. Will there be a little push and pull? Will there be Jersey is retired until it isn't with some of these other teams as guys start to hover around jerseys that previously weren't available to them? I think the other part of this is, Mike, I, I mean – you know, because the NFL has become a 24-7, 365 league, this is just one of those other things. I never even thought of this when I first wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. I, I, it just didn't occur to me that people were really going to think it's a big deal. But I would say of everything I've written about this offseason, uh, I would say the biggest reaction I got on Twitter is when I wrote about these numbers. And and different websites would pick it up. Like, I think Bleacher Report or somebody picked it up. And I I just, I had to not look at Twitter for like 24 hours. It was a, just a, a vast expanse of opining about numbers. And different team, or different uh, fans wanted their guy to wear a certain number and all that stuff. And I just never figured that this was going to be a big deal. But, hey, I'm 63 years old. I guess it's not a big deal to me, but to somebody who's a lot younger, it must be. For how many years have you been watching the NFL? How long now? You know, 50, 55. There was one change like this in the past 50 years, and it was when they allowed the receivers to wear numbers in the teens back in 2003-ish. And I didn't like that. At the time, I was like, oh, I don't, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And it's funny because my reaction now is, what the hell, let's do it, because I think I've assumed at some level it's coming ever since Mike Ornstein tried aggressively to get the NFL to change the rule for Reggie Bush so he could wear five back in 2006. I just assumed at some point the NFL would do it. But I think the reaction is predictable and obvious because it changes the way 
that we see the games. And football is such a visual medium. We are going to revolutionize what it looks like at the NFL level. It's going to look like it does at the college level. You're going to have this swarm of numbers at positions we've never seen before. It is going to take some adjusting, and it does create this cottage industry of which player is going to try to get which number. And it really is amazing to me that Tom Brady, of all the hills he could choose to die on, and he never does, when has he ever complained about a rule except, you know, rule about how much air is allowed to be in the bladder of the football? Other than that, when's he ever complained about a rule? When's he ever? And of all the rules and, and between the timing and the fact that he's coming off like old man, get off my lawn at the age of 43. You know, once we scratch past that TB12 surface, maybe he is Clint Eastwood in Grand Torino. It's just odd to me hey. that, that this is coming from him on this issue. This is crazy, Mike. But I honestly, when I saw that tweet yesterday, I honestly thought of Clint Eastwood and Grand Torino. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm serious. I can't believe you just said that. But the reason I thought of it, a reason I thought of it is older guy, probably 20 years ago wouldn't have cared about this, but now he really does care because he's a little bit anal in his old age. And Tom Brady, I'm sure, is exactly the same way. He likes things the way they were. He doesn't see any big reason why they should change. And you know what? I'm sure in Brady's mind, if there have to be duplicate numbers on the practice squad, you know, why is that me? Why is that me? Look at that. Why is that me? It's always you because you... Peter, you yell at clouds I'm, all the time. You I'm yell jealous. at clouds all the time. Yeah, you do. But can I? Let me let me just make one one other point. <laughs> Brady probably thinks if he sat in a room with Brett Veach, he would say, "Okay, give two guys on the practice squad thirty. Give an offensive and defensive lineman on the practice squad. Give them both sixty-three. Or whatever. And, and you know, so, but don't cloud the game on Sunday. And I'm sure that's the way Brady thinks. And the way the Chiefs think is we want everybody to have an individual number. And the other thing, too, if there really was some great strategic advantage to having this blur of dissimilar numbers for a defense, Nick Saban would have the Alabama defense and in all sorts of funky numbers. He'd be using ampersands and exclamation points as numbers if there was some yeah. sort of advantage to, to, to this. So I, 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 I don't – that's what makes it even weirder. Number one, Tom Brady shooting his shot on something like this. And number two, him missing the mark so badly. It just is weird. I, I don't – I'm not complaining about it. He's given us all the folder all we need to start the show on a Friday, and we've got – two or three stories about it on PFT, and I'll probably write another one or two because people are interested. People like this because it is going to change the way we see the game. Peter, one rule that happened this week, a rule that was passed, it's not going to change the way we see the game. It's going to change the way the officials see the game, specifically the replay assistant, expanded duties. You had reported in Football Morning in America on Monday that it was going to be close. The vote ended up being successful. The replay assistant will have greater duties. I call it a half measure. I want booth umpire. I want sky judge. I'm on record with that. Your thoughts on this this mid-level step to give the replay assistant more say or at least more 
potential influence over what the officials decide on the field. Mike, the reason why it's staggered across the finish line is because there's too many teams in the NFL that don't truly know what it means and still don't really know what it means because they feel like, and, and I talked to one person last weekend, an NFL coach, who said to me that, you know, there are a lot of coaches in the league that feel like New York just wants to stick its finger in the pie and have more influence on what call is made on the field. And as much as people are celebrating the fact that NFL games were about a minute and a half shorter in 2020 versus 2019, I think most people in the league feel like now that that's just going to be reversed. That even if the flags stay at a much lower level, I think three uh, accepted penalties fewer per game uh, in 20 versus 19, even if the number of penalties stay the same, there could well be more stoppages and more crew conferences because the replay assistant upstairs uh, you know, can, can call down to the field and say, hey, wait a minute. It looked like he had a foot out of bounds. You guys should have a conference about that and let me talk to you. And so I think that's why, that's why this came close to not passing because there were people in the league who feel that it's just going to lead to more overreach by New York and by the replay assistant. But if ultimately the goal is to get it right, that, that's what surprises me the most about this. It surprises me that they won't go the full distance and, and have a member of the officiating crew who sees what we see at home and bridges the gap between what millions witness on TV and what seven people see amid the gladiators. I don't know why there's a resistance to get these calls right and to avoid another Rams-Saints debacle. That's what they should be striving for, Peter. I don't understand why there isn't an obsession with avoiding another outcome like that because this thing, whatever it is, however it works, it's not going to prevent, as implemented, it's not going to prevent what we saw in the Rams-Saints-NFC championship game. Here's, here's, what, here's what one person uh, close to the competition committee told me about that purview and about why the competition committee doesn't want what so many coaches want, which is the eighth official. And that is this. If you think that an eighth official upstairs isn't going to lead to more flags, then you're probably being naive. The NFL doesn't want more flags. And the reason why the competition committee liked this sort of compromise, this halfway measure, is that if there is an obvious wrong call, an obvious wrong call, like, uh, you know, did he trap the ball? Did he not? You know, did he step out of bounds? Did he not? You know, they're going to be able to correct that. Now, it remains to be seen whether the replay assistant upstairs is going to be able to have the power in a case like in the Rams-Saints game, is going to be able to have the power to buzz down quickly and say you got to have a conference and you, you know, that was obvious pass interference. That's not why this rule was created, but I don't know at this point, Mike, whether the replay assistant 
is going to have that sort of power in the game. My understanding is the replay assistant won't, Peter. These are specific objective situations. Did two feet get down? Was the ball trapped, as you said? Objective, undeniable, that can be quickly supported by video evidence. So if there is a clear and obvious error on a subjective call like pass interference, replay assistant can't do anything. New York can't do anything. Now, look, I'm a firm believer in knowing when to break the rules in advance of the greater good, and the greater good is avoid another major controversy. And if Al Riveron had simply broken glass in event of the emergency that happened in the Superdome, imagine how less we would have had to talk about over the last two years. So I guess I shouldn't complain. But my interest is the game. I don't want – now, it would be good for us to cover – From a business standpoint, an interest standpoint, an engagement standpoint, it would be good for us to cover a major political controversy where because gambling is legalized in 35 or 40 states, and it'll get there within the next few years to 35 or 40, it's in the mid-20s now, if Congress decides to create an agency with oversight over the NFL, if some prosecutor decides to convene a grand jury to see whether or not someone was on the take that influenced that horrible call that wasn't rectified. We, you don't want that if you're the NFL, Peter. You want to try to avoid that. And that's what amazes me. They have that failure of imagination. We've heard that word a lot this year in other contexts. But in this context, you need to have the ability to see where you are and where you can be if you don't create a proper pathway to avoid that destination. And that's what I think they're, they're going to flirt with as gambling becomes more prevalent, as the stakes literally and figuratively get higher and higher for these calls. you got to put mechanisms in place to avoid another instance of what we're seeing on the screen with one of the most controversial calls in league history. Yeah, and Mike, I, I understand how the rule is written. You know, I really do. But I also think that, you know, you know how that play would have changed right there? I'll tell you how that play would have changed. That play would have changed with a crew conference, okay, on the field right after that call with other officials being able to come into the conference and say, you know, Nickel Roby Coleman, you know, interfered with this receiver. And if they get confirmation from upstairs, Mike, I know that I know what the rule says. I really do. I know what the rule says. But if in a crew conference they decide to throw the flag, you know, maybe there's going to be some grand investigation of saying that the germination of this came from the replay assistant upstairs. He's not supposed to do that. But in that case, if I'm Roger Goodell, I come out on Sunday night, uh, you know, in the officiating department, I say, we got the call right. That's exactly what I would say. So I understand the the letter of the law in the rule, but honestly, uh, I, I, I just can't buy that it's not going to fix an absolutely egregious call when everybody in the world can see it. Well, they already had the mechanism in place to do it. Now Riveron chose not to do it in that moment. The question is, with the replay assistant having a voice in the process, will that make a difference? Could it be between the replay assistant and Al Riveron saying, drop the flag, drop the flag, drop the flag, the flag gets dropped? But my understanding is Riveron specifically did not say anything because the rules prevent him from doing so. So, Peter, we're in the same place here. We agree on this. 
I think the bottom line is if there's any chance that there will be some sort of effort by the replay assistant to get that flag dropped if there's another Nicole Roby Coleman, Tommy Lee Lewis incident like that, that technically, technically is beyond the purview of the replay assistant. If we think they're going to do it and we think they should, my point is this. Let's just create the rule in the first place so, it, so we know it'll happen. So we don't just have to hope that someone will have the willingness to break the rules to avoid a bigger problem. That, that's all I'm saying. Let's, just, let's make the rule fit yeah. what we hope the application will be. I understand that, Mike, but, you know, there's 200 and what, 73 now regular season games or 272, whatever it is, 17 per team. And, and you know, if you think that, that that's only going to happen once a year, there's going to be all kinds of – people are going to want the officiating to be so perfect that they're going to say, well, geez, why didn't the replay official get involved in this – or the replay assistant get involved in this call or that call or the other call? I just think I, – I, look, it's hard to say – when there is an emergency break glass, okay? But a pass interference call in the third quarter of uh, a game between, you know, Detroit and Buffalo is probably not that moment. And and so, and I realize I am one of those people who say a foul is a foul is a foul. I don't care when it happens. I don't care what game. I don't care anything. If it's a foul, it's a foul. Call it. But if you open up the can of worms on, say, pass interference, you're never, ever going to play a three-hour football game again, ever. You know, the games are going to be three hours and 20 minutes long. I realize many people don't care. I don't really care either because there are windows that are are bigger now. But I, I just, if you think that it's not going to really slow down the game, I think you're wrong. I think there's a point where the NFL has to prioritize getting it right over how long it takes because of the proliferation of gambling and the money they're going to make from it as that industry matures. Just last week, a billion dollars over five years in money for nothing from a tri-exclusive, I still don't know what that means, I think I do, sportsbook partnership with FanDuel, DraftKings, and Caesars. They're going to make more and more money. I had an owner tell me late last year, franchises are going to be worth between 8 and $10 billion soon as they understand how to monetize and generate more and more and more from gambling. So if you're going to do that, Peter, it's incumbent, I think, on the league to spend the money. And I think at the core, that's what they don't want to do is spend the money on 17 new employees when they already have the replay assistants there who can do this half job. Why pay for the full job and add all these expenses? Well, here's why you add the expenses, because you avoid the inevitable headache of what happens when even if it's third quarter of a week 11 meaningless game between two teams that have three wins combined, if people are betting in-game, play-by-play, and that's where it's heading, and that bet is corrupted by an official who has his head up his butt and they don't fix it, that's going to be a problem. So there's, there's not going to be an objective or a hope or a wish or an aspiration that they get these calls right. At some point, there's going to be a mandate that they get these calls right. That's where the ball's moving. And, and it, I'm astounded that they don't see that, Peter. Mike, how many calls that are overturned on replay uh, out of 10? How many, how many replay decisions 
whether overturned or confirmed, okay, or upheld. How many of those do you disagree with? Probably three out of 10, right? You know, that you, uh, on the field, I would say if I'm just guessing, I disagree with like three of them. Remember when we, uh, you know, when we had that NBC session a couple of years ago with Al Riveron and he would show us the plays on the thing and he would say, okay, what do you think of this one? What do you think of that one? And even on ones that Al Riveron thought were obvious, I remember saying at one point, I said, no, I disagree. That was pass interference. And he said, no, it wasn't. And so, you know, that is the problem with officiating. We don't all, we don't all see it the same. And that's why if you create a situation where you can open that up to an eye in the sky, I would guess, and it's just a guess, that that eye in the sky, you know, two out of 10 times is going to get it wrong. So should you really have the eye in the sky on pass interference? And that's my, that's kind of my problem with an ex, with a guy who can throw a flag from upstairs. I don't think he's going to get it right all the time, number one. And number two, he's, it's just going to make the game longer. I almost called this a good problem to have. It's not a good problem to have. On one hand, it's a good problem because the NFL is going to make a ton of more money from gambling. But it becomes a potentially bad problem to have because you have to make sure that your backyard is clean, that everything is taken care of. Because if you have a mess out there and you don't take care of it, someone else is going to take care of it for you. Whether it is the creation of a federal agency, whether it is some sort of full-blown scandal and people are potentially indicted for some sort of Tim Donahue-type skullduggery, I just think that every measure, whatever the cost, needs to be explored and considered and some need to be adopted. So we understand, yes, there are some close calls and reasonable minds may differ, but we have a mechanism in place to prevent Ram Saints, to prevent the kind of bad call that isn't currently rectified that can wreck the NFL. That's what they need to do. And Peter, they got a hell of a lot more riding on it than you and I do. Again, this is something that we would benefit from if it becomes a huge story, but it would hurt the game. And I don't want the game to be hurt by something that's avoidable. This to me screams out, it's avoidable. Yeah. Hey, look, Mike, um, you're right. Reasonable minds can disagree on this, but and, and I do understand. And last year, I complained a lot about some of the calls that were obvious that just weren't being made. And clearly, there had been some sort of edict, even if it's only in, you know, when the officials get their grades on Tuesday after games. You know, there has been some sort of edict, you know, to settle down on the calls, you know, to, to you know, it's got to really be egregious for you to make this call. Okay, but honestly, as I look at the whole uh, look at the whole thing in retrospect right now, I kind of like the fact that um, that it's a little bit like an NBA playoff game, a little bit like sort of let them play, because I think that the game goes faster, it's smoother, and you don't have as many ticky tack calls. And if you lower the standard, it's easier to get all the calls right, Peter. Another thing they need to do is increase the money for all officials. I've heard that time and again. When you've got a guy like a Dean Blandino who says on the record a few years ago, I was interviewing for the PFTPM podcast, he said in a very tactful way, the league doesn't value that position the way it should of executive VP of officiating. Right. That's code for they don't pay enough. And when you have 
multiple right. referees who choose to retire to go work for TV instead because they're going to get more money and they're going to have less stress. They're not paying enough for these jobs. Those jobs become more important in a world of widespread legalized gambling. And the sooner they realize that, the sooner they're going to protect themselves against debacles as well. One quick thing about officiating and about paying and everything like that. In my opinion, Dean Blandino should have been brought back into this league a year ago at whatever the number would have had to be, even if it's 1.5, 1.8 million, and everybody is like fainting back there. What? An officiating <laughs> supervisor, a vice president of officiating, 1.8 million? Look, from Labor Day to uh, the second week of February, every year in the NFL, who is the second most important person in the National Football League office? And that is the vice president of officiating. He's got to make the tough calls. And he's the one who has to be the ultimate adjudicator when there are close calls and coaches are calling screaming. Okay, why do you think Dean Blandino wanted out? I mean, it was heartache. It, it just, it, it, number one, it's heartache. And number two, it just totally controls your life. If you want to do that, if you want to have a really good person at this job, pay him. How many people in the NFL office right now are making a million bucks? A lot, okay? And so to me, not valuing the vice president of officiating uh, and not paying the vice president of officiating, um, you know, a premier salary, I think has been a huge uh, black eye for the NFL over the years. I agree with everything that you said 100% with one small caveat. I would suggest that from Labor Day until early February, the VP of officiating is the most important person in the league office because right. every be. game has that person's potential fingerprints on it where the commissioner, you know, suspensions, those are significant, those are important, other big picture things. But game in and game out, week in and week out, it's that executive VP, senior VP, whatever title they want to give out. They give out a bigger title in instead of giving out big money. They need to give out the big money and the hell with the title. Who cares about the title? It's the W-2 that they care about, and it needs to have more money for that job. Let's take a break. When we return, the Jets on the reality that next week there will be a rookie quarterback joining the team. Do they feel pressure about playing a rookie quarterback? We've got more PFT Live to come right after this. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. I don't think there's risk. You know, it still comes down to having a good football team and building a good roster around uh, uh, around everybody. I mean, it's there's players here that are talented. There's rookies that are going to be coming in that are talented, and uh, the the expectation is that they're one of 53 when it's all said and done, and they've they've all got to perform their best to create a great football team. And um, so, as as far as pressure is concerned, there, there's no pressure on me. It's just. There's always pressure. There's always pressure to put put together the best football team we possibly can, regardless of who's playing. So, um, uh, very comfortable with uh, every decision that's made, and, and it's our job to to, to get them to uh, to put them in the best position to be successful. And that not just the quarterback, but but every single player that takes the field. The one thing that I can attest to is, uh, from a schematic standpoint, uh, the scheme that Lafleur is bringing is is the best scheme in the world. Robert Sala talking about the prospect of playing a rookie quarterback. You know, Peter, five, ten years ago, that would have raised some eyebrows. Nowadays, it's just a given. With all these great young quarterbacks coming into the NFL and this clamoring to get your franchise guy who's going to be with you, not just five or ten years, but maybe if you're lucky, 15 years, maybe longer than that. I think that's another impact of the Tom Brady career. You get that guy who is the guy you've got that position taken care of for a long time. So you throw him into the fray and you see what he can do. That's become the default now. The days of putting a guy on a bench for a year or two, they're not over. It's just the exception now. The rule is if you're going to use a first-round pick on a quarterback, especially closer to the top, that guy's getting on the field or you're going to draft somebody else. Yeah, you know, Mike, I think – I think over the years, two of the reasons why it has become so much more accepted that you're going to play a quarterback early. Number one, uh, in college football right now, it used to be, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that a college football team would play a different game from an NFL team, you know, and now the games are so much more similar. I think number two is that quarterbacks, most of them, are playing football a lot more before they get to college. The seven-on-seven leagues, Andy Dalton told me a few years ago, he goes, you know, basically the redshirting need when you get to pro football is not nearly what it used to be because we've already been playing, in essence, so many of us, two seasons you know, a fall season and a spring season all through like middle school, high school. And so I think that those two aspects really are feeding into just the fact that teams want players to play early and they're significantly more ready to play early. Do you remember last year on Hard Knocks when uh, early on in training camp, you know, you would watch Hard Knocks and there would be Pep Hamilton, the quarterback coach of the Chargers, and 
he would be talking to Justin Herbert. And I mean, he, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was almost like, dude, get it together. Come on, let's go. And he did. He did get it together. In one training camp, he proved that he was ready when that needle accidentally punctured Tyrod <laughs> Taylor's lung, that he was more than ready to play. And he played great. And I think that is what teams see right now. Joe Burrow last year, if he didn't get hurt, Joe Burrow was going to have a phenomenal year. And he probably would have been rookie of the year over Justin Herbert. At least it would have been close. And so last year, two quarterbacks picked of, of the top three. Two of the three were eminently ready to play football opening day for an NFL team. And that's why I think you see all these teams scrambling to get to the top. And Mike, I'm in the process of doing research now for my mock draft, and I think it's really possible that those five quarterbacks all go in the top nine picks, whether it's to a team in that slot or whether it's going to be traded because there are teams talking to try to get up there and who want those quarterbacks. So they see what we see. They see the potential. Let's get your guy and start playing him right now. And have him for a long, long time and have that position taken care of. That gives you job security as a coach. You think Brett Veach or Andy Reid are going to be in any trouble during the duration of Patrick Mahomes' career? I don't think so. And I think that same mindset applies and, you know, Rich Eisen and I were talking about this earlier in the week because he was a big proponent of Kyle Pitts to the Falcons potentially at four and still is. That could happen. But but my point is you you take Kyle Pitts and you scratch off that lottery ticket. The winner is capped at $100,000. The winner for a franchise quarterback lottery ticket, that prize is a hell of a lot more than that. And that's not taking anything away from Kyle Pitts, but there's plenty of great skill position players out there. And a great quarterback makes an average skill position player into a better skill position player. It's the quarterback that everyone wants. It's the quarterback that makes you relevant every year, that keeps putting you in the playoffs and makes your team one of the most desirable teams in the in the entire league. That's what these teams are looking for. And I think that's that's why this trend of Rookie quarterbacks being drafted high, playing right away, and then in turn, when we get to February and March, veteran quarterbacks constantly available. Teams are going to be willing to cut the cord on a veteran guy because they're looking for that franchise guy. And unless you're that franchise guy, you're going to be at risk of being not re-signed, potentially cut, potentially traded, because they're always looking for that guy that's going to be the answer for a generation, maybe longer. Mike, I'm going to take a slight right turn here and I'm going to just tell you one other aspect of this as you were talking that really hit me in the head. It's occurred to me all week as I've been doing some research into the draft. It's occurred to me that there is one team that is really uh, going to be negatively impacted by the quarterback mania in this draft. And that is the Chicago Bears. And here's why. The Bears pick 20. It's almost certain that none of those quarterbacks are going to be around at number 20. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that if the Bears want any of those quarterbacks and have to trade up into, say, the top seven or eight picks in order to get one of those quarterbacks, what are they going to have to do? Well, 
There is a template out there, and it's San Francisco to Miami. You're going to have to pay your 22nd and tw- 2022 and 23 first round picks. Suppose you're Ryan Pace and you go to George McCaskey, you know, the owner representative of the Chicago Bears, the chairman of the Bears, and you say to him, listen, we can get Trey Lance, but we got to give up our uh, first round picks in 22 and 23. What goes through George McCaskey's head? If I were George McCaskey, I would say, hmm, I, I barely brought these guys back this year. And now if we go six and 11 this year and both of these guys get fired, you know, Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace, then where are we? I got to hire a general manager and a head coach and tell them, oh, by the way, you know, your welcome gift is that you don't have a one in either of the next two drafts. So when <laughs> that just occurred to me when you were talking about that. And, and I just say, man, the Bears cannot catch a break. Hey, Peter, we've been on that issue to a certain extent, the idea that it's in the interests of Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy to trade future assets and move up and get a guy, the presence of whom gives them job security because it will be more difficult to fire them after this year because you're taking the chances. A new GM, new coach wants nothing to do with that guy. You gave up all that stuff to go get. You're right. It does make it harder for them. I think the team that picks one spot before Washington, there's been some noise about them moving up. They're in a different position, different dynamic. Everyone's on the same page. But when right. you've got this this hot seat, this simmering hot seat, it it does complicate a desire to potentially move up. And also, look, there's human nature at play here. Pace and Nagy are smart enough to know that they're more likely to come back in 2022 if they're developing this young quarterback and also if they've traded the first-round pick next year and maybe the year after that. So, yeah, that, that's where others have to get involved and make sure they know what they're getting into because it does make it very difficult to make changes once you've mortgaged the future the way that the Bears would have to. Let's let's go ahead and take a break. When we return, a team that uh, is trying to find a brighter future than what it's seen over the past few years, the Las Vegas Raiders. Mike Mayock, Team GM, talks about working with head coach John Gruden. More PFT Live right after this. recent podcast by uh including a, the nfl former nfl executive uh, who kind of painted john gruden in unflattering uh, terms to work with uh, and said that as a result of that you know it puts you in a bad position or a difficult position uh, can you elaborate on your working relationship with john gruden and shed any light on what may have been said uh you know uh, along those terms well first of all i have no idea what you're talking about Okay, I really don't pay attention, so I can't comment on any of what was said by a, quote, anonymous former NFL executive. Um, all I can tell you is from my relationship with John is the two things I love about John Gruden and respect the most is he's got an incredible passion for the game of football and a work ethic that I've never seen. Those two things I respect as much as I can respect anything, and I just try to, to match his passion and work ethic. 
First of all, it really is amazing to me, Peter, that of all the NFL news and information that is out there to be consumed on an ongoing basis, the only people who never consume any of it are the people who actually have the jobs in the NFL. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what's being said out there, but hey, (laughs) it's amazing. I have someone, Mike, I I think. But Peter, Peter, the caveat to that is they have someone who watches that for them and tells them the important stuff that that, that's the reality yeah yeah sorry and you know like in that particular thing and i i had not seen what somebody a former somebody who used to work with gruden said but i i'll just give you my my first opinion is i bet you could find i mean mike as you well know i'm the nicest guy in the world And I bet you could find 10 people in my past who have worked with me and said, I am the biggest turd in the punch bowl. So, you know, it depends who you talk to about somebody. That's the opinion. You can get a different opinion about almost anybody. And I don't know. I I don't place a lot of stock in that, honestly. And, and look, there's been plenty of stuff swirling about Gruden. Say one thing, do another. Chris Sims has documented some of that here on this program, how to your face, you're my guy, you're my guy, you're my guy, and then you hear him talking about you behind your back. And and, and Chris has said that. And, and some of it he thinks was deliberate and intentional and it was aimed at motivating him. But look, Mayock's in a tough spot because Gruden runs the show there. Mayock doesn't. But... It can't be Gruden's fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. When the defense sucked, it wasn't Gruden's fault. It was Paul Gunther's Gunther's fault. What happened? Gunther's gone. And there was some chatter that maybe Mayock was going to take the fall for all the money they didn't spend to improve the defense last year and how it skewed toward offense. But who was Gruden going to find to replace him with? That's the other side of it. Who are you going to get to come work for Gruden when Gruden's fully in charge? Mayock does a good job, but Gruden takes over and... And, uh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't mean Mayock's safe this year, but I, I, I think that's part of the reality. Gruden is type A, triple positive, hard driving, hard charging, but so are plenty of other people in this business, and it shouldn't surprise you. You're right. There's always going to be somebody who worked for a head coach who's going to have bad things to say about him. You know, Mike, a lot of this, I think, is is also – part of the simple fact that John Gruden was hired and whatever the number is, he told me he definitely wasn't making $10 million a year, but whatever it is he's making, he's making a lot of money. And he was hired on this long, long contract by Mark Davis. And in the three years before he got there, okay, in the three years before John Gruden arrived, you know, the the Raiders won 25 games. In the three years he's been there, the Raiders have won 19 games. So there's starting to be this little drumbeat of pressure. Maybe not from Mark Davis, uh, and maybe not yet from the fans who are in love with their team in Vegas. But at some point, you can't be 19 and 29 anymore. You can't. And all of this stuff that is said before drafts and in the offseason and all this, there's only one thing that matters. And I've told you this story before, but I firmly believe it. Bill Parcells, one time when I was covering the New York Giants, I asked him a question about, 
oh, you're not going to have Joe Morris. You're not going to have Lawrence Taylor this week. You're not going to have this guy. And he says, hey, give me your media guide. Give me your media guide. So I handed it to him and he goes to the records section and he starts looking at the results. 1964, W-L-L-L-W-L. And he goes, it doesn't say L parentheses, Fran Tarkenton was hurt this week. End of parentheses. <laughs> it says L. That's all it says. So nothing else matters. And at some point, 19 and 29 is the only thing that matters. All this other stuff, it's fluff. Win the ball games. Well, and Mark Davis, the one who ultimately makes the decision because he and Gruden seem to be so close. It's going to take a lot worse, I think, than 19 and 29 to get Mark Davis to make a change. We'll see how that plays up. When we return, draft six days away. Rumor mill generates whatever falderall we may trip across when PFT Live continues right after this. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 